Nation, welcome back and thank you for tuning in for episode number 71 with our guest, Dr. Alan Goldhammer. This is the episode to share with as many people as you possibly can. There is so much life-changing information packed into this podcast, we are calling it the body's great reset. If you haven't visited us on YouTube, please do so by typing in Healthcare 360 with Scotty Burgess in the search bar. This is where you can find and view this entire episode, as well as the many short clip deep dive from when you're on the move. To date, we have over 250 videos posted with valuable content. Check it out and remember to give us a thumbs up, hit that subscribe button, share, and add a comment to the discussion. Your support and sharing this episode really helps the nation grow. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, it would mean a lot to the entire Healthcare 360 team if you could take a moment, write a review, as it really helps out the show. Have a topic to bring to the nation? Head on over to scottyburgess.com and schedule a meeting with me personally. If Instagram is more convenient, you can reach me at my Instagram handle at scottyburgess. Now, let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Goldhammer. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a part of the 360 Nation. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Healthcare 360. Uh, I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Uh, in front of me, we have Dr. Alan Goldhammer. You heard the story before, but I was on a plane flight. I was going with my family up to New Jersey, visiting my mother-in-law, and we downloaded some episodes of some interesting topics that I wanted to get and kind of dive into on Netflix. We had Jeffrey Wu on in the series Unwell with Fasting. In that same episode, I came across what we had all had heard before if you had read any kind of religious book out there as far as the fasting, the 40 days, the 40 nights. And then I came across Dr. Alan Goldhammer and what he was doing at uh, True North Health Center. So he had a couple of remarkable stories. And what was great about the series and what they'd done, it was an unbelievably well-done contrast between those who do water fasting, those who don't. We've had folks who are plant-based, carnivore, ketogenic in this podcast. Uh, Dr. Goldhammer is one of the leading experts, in my opinion, because I've I've done my homework. I think he probably is the leading authority in water fasting that's medically supervised, medically supervised. So he is bringing you through A to Z. He then has a really high focus on plant-based diets, the reasons why, and some of the other elements, as I'm introducing Dr. Goldhammer here, that he brought to the table are the effects of salts and sugar and oils and the combinations of. And you'll probably remember during my interview with Ben Azadi with ketogenic diets, he was talking about rancid oils and the impact that it has in the body. Dr. Goldhammer, thank you for being available. A lot of people need to hear what you have to say. I look at water fasting as a great reset for the body. Yeah. You know, right now, people have uh, big concerns, particularly about acute infectious disease. And one of the common things I've noticed is that the people that have particularly poor reactions to COVID-19 and other acute responses is metabolic syndrome. Yeah. Uh, so obesity, diabetes, hypertension, these predisposing variables may be an important component in why some people have very poor reactions versus others that have much less reactions of much less concern. And so I think that one of our focuses ought to be helping people understand just how deadly metabolic syndrome is, how important it is to get rid of excess weight, to normalize blood sugar levels, to normalize blood pressure levels, and not pretend that the typical pharmaceutical management of those conditions is adequate to prevent our vulnerability to more serious illness, whether it be heart attack and stroke, uh, the consequences of 
diabetes and autoimmune disease, or can, even conditions <clears throat> like lymphoma. All of these appear to be profoundly affected by you know, baseline health levels. So yeah. our focus is always the idea that health results from healthful living. So we focus on diet, sleep, and exercise. And we get intense education of patients to understand how incredibly important and valuable controlling diet, sleep, and exercise is. With diet, our belief is that the most health-promoting diet may be a whole plant food diet that's free of salt, oil, and sugar. You know, SOS, the international symbol of danger, also stands for the chemicals that are added to food that stimulate dopamine in our brain, make the foods taste good, but may ultimately undermine our health. So we feed patients whole plant foods that avoid the addition of salt, oil, and sugar. That also means avoiding coffee and alcohol and all the other chemicals that are sometimes added to the diet of patients. Get them exercising appropriately. We get them sleeping appropriately. And then we do something really radical. We'll use medically supervised water-only fasting to undo the consequences of dietary excess. And we've been able to demonstrate that that can be done safely, effectively, and, you know, it's a useful interventive tool in our practice. You just gave a little sneak peek to about 20 different things <laughs> I want to talk about there. Dopamine. Gosh, how many discussions have you seen or heard, YouTube interviews, audiobooks, all of it about the dopamine addiction that's really out there? Alcohol, drugs, sex, food, all of it, it's, it's on that dopamine release. Specifically, I've seen some of your interviews in the past. I have read your studies that you have come out with. Let me uh, go through this one little detail that I want to share with everyone. Dr. Goldhammer also has two scientific publications that have been released, a medically supervised water-only fasting and the treatment of hypertension back in 2001 in October 2002. Medically supervised water-only fasting and the treatment of borderline hypertension. How serious are those conditions? Well, you know, high blood factors. pressure is the leading contributing cause of death and disability in industrialized countries, and it contributes to everything from stroke and heart attack and multiple other problems uh, downstream. So uh, controlling blood pressure is of great importance. The problem is the conventional management of hypertension with medications leaves much to be desired, and not just because of the common side effects of chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and premature death, but mm -hmm. also the fact that it doesn't prevent the vulnerability, and there's, even if you're controlling hypertension, say, reduce the risk of stroke, it doesn't necessarily prevent the other downstream consequences of a patient that's hypertensive. We know now that a large amount of essential hypertension can be controlled by controlling what you put in your mouth, hmm. uh, that diet and lifestyle can be profoundly helpful. And in our study, medically supervised water-only fasting and the treatment of hypertension, we took 174 consecutive patients with high blood pressure, and 174 people were able to achieve pressure low enough to eliminate the need for medication. We have the largest effect size ever shown in treating high blood pressure in humans with an average effect of 60 points in stage three hypertension or people whose systolic blood pressure starts at 180 or above. Wow. So this is a very effective treatment for normalizing blood pressure. Now, granted, in order to keep the blood pressure down, patients have to be willing to do dangerous and radical things like eat well, exercise, <laughs> go to bed on time. You know, you can't go back to eating the processed of that cause the obesity and the problem. You have to continue a health-promoting diet and lifestyle, which is why at the True North Health Center, a big part of our program is not just to safely get people through medically supervised fasting, but to do the intense education necessary to motivate people to make the diet and lifestyle changes that are necessary to sustain health over the long run. You've mentioned in your bio that you've helped over 20,000 people, 20,000 people who went through this program with you. 
over at True yeah, North? Yeah, it's, it's in excess of 20,000 patients have undergone medically supervised fasting at the True North Health Center, but that's over a period of 36 years. Right. But at the same time, what I want to focus on here is what about children? It starts in childhood. It starts with parents not focusing on good, proper dietary, healthy living when we're a child because the marketers are super smart knowing that the, what the height of the carriage is going to be or the shopping cart and where the kid's going to sit. And it's always at arm's length. Have you ever noticed that? So the kids are always reaching for the sugar. It's right there. And you have this great animated character in front of you. Have you helped children? What have you seen there versus adults? And then also just the discipline of the food. I, I know that's a big focus for you as well. Well, you know, the fact is that people in our society are addicted to the artificial stimulation of dopamine in their brain. Dopamine is the neurochemical associated with pleasure. Mm -hmm. And you can get into addiction problems with drugs, and you can get into addiction-type problems with these highly processed chemicals in food. The use of sugar, oil, and salt has profound downstream consequences. You know, even things like sodium, people don't think about it, but even though there's no calories in added salt, it stimulates passive overeating. So it's it still responsible for contributing to obesity. It has a profound effect on the microbiome, the five pounds of bacteria that live in our gut, and that plays such an important role in our immune system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a thousand strain of bacteria that have identified which bacteria you have and what they poo inside you is largely dependent on what you feed them. You've got a, a trillion creatures defecating inside your intestinal tract right now. And the quality of that defecation is largely dependent on what they're fed. If they're fed animal foods, we know you have a different microfloral balance and different bypass. You get a lot more TMA, which becomes TMAO, which irritates the animal lining of the vessels and may be associated with heart disease, etc. If you feed your bacteria of soluble fibers, your sweet potatoes, your vegetables, you get vitamin K and you get fertilizer. So simply spoken, the diet affect lots of things besides just obesity, things that have a profound effect on our immune system. So yeah, you know, feeding them a lot of highly processed foods may be good for business, but may not be good for their long-term health. Now, my clinical experience is largely with adults because it's usually in adulthood that uh, people see the consequences of the diseases we treat, the high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, the type 2 diabetes, the autoimmune diseases, and lymphoma. These are the most common conditions we treat and research. And so the vast majority of our patients are people that are adults, not children. Fortunately, children tend to uh, not have the long history of abuse and therefore much more responsive to dietary change alone. We, we usually don't have to resort to long-term fasting in kids because we're able to get them better of the conditions that we can treat with diet and lifestyle modification. That's important. That's something because I know in one of the podcasts that we talked about before this conversation with Rich Roll, I'm a big fan of his as well. You had an amazing interview with him, so I congratulate you on that. It's interesting. That interview, which was the crazy benefits of fasting, has now been seen by 1.2 million people, which is bizarre. You know, I'm used to speaking to small groups over the years, <laughs> and you think about how many people 1.2 million people is. It's really kind of a mind-bending. You'd have to do 500 years of lectures once a week to approximate that type of exposure. So it's been a little bit of a eye-opening awareness for me that in, if your goal is to try to share a message, you know, this podcast business is really kind of a new and interesting uh, innovation. And it's also nice if you have good hosts who know how to think outside the box, who are open to suggestion and just kind of go with the flow, if you will, cliche as that sounds, but you let the conversation take you where it's going to take you. 
and you're educated enough to know where to stop and say, wait a minute, let's camp out there for a moment. I think people will benefit from that information, which is amazing. You mentioned in the conversation with, with Rich, two-thirds of people are overweight, obese, unhealthy, whatever category, adjective you want to throw in there, and the one-third who are not are considered you know, the abnormal. You know, if you go to a, a typical physician today in the United States, and you report to the physician that you've lost, say, 50 pounds, and you've managed to keep it off, mm -hmm. your doctor will not immediately think, oh, you must have adopted a whole plant food diet, gotten into an exercise program, and congratulations. They're going to have a big red flag that goes up that says, oh, we got to check you for colon cancer. You may have an eating disorder, or you may be a drug addict. Mm. Because in many physicians' experience, the only people they see lose substantial weight and keep it off are people dying from cancer right. or that are dealing with drug addiction or eating disorders. They do not have the experience of people aggressively making diet and lifestyle changes, sustaining weight loss, and maintaining it. Even if you look at aggressive medical procedures, the ability to sustain you know, long-term weight loss, the results are poor. Mm -hmm. uh, clinical outcomes are poor. So it's most physicians are not equipped to really encourage people to make these types of radical diet and lifestyle changes. And unfortunately, changing the color of your meat from red to white doesn't do it when it comes to really helping people overcome these lifelong chronic diseases. They have to get down and really take care of business, which means sleeping, exercising, and eating. All of those need to be taken aggressively if the results are going to be sustained. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for mentioning that because that's something that a lot of people think, well, I'm eating chicken. It's healthy, right? Something being less bad than something else doesn't make it good. It just makes it less bad. Uh, I also follow Sean Baker. He was on the Joe Rogan uh, podcast. I follow him on Instagram. He is all about meat and carnivore. Sure. I'm not saying pro-meat or pro-not because then on Netflix, it was the game changers. So there's a lot of, again, contrast. My show is not about this is what it is and what works. My show is here's the information. Go decide for yourself. Sean Baker, for well, we, example, is all meat and eggs. We need to be really careful, though, when you look at programs that advocate, for example, the carnivorial-type programs, differentiating what's good for short-term results versus what's a long-term yes. health-promoting sustainable diet. And, you know, when we look at population studies, you know, how many long-lived populations are, say, doing carnivorial programs versus plant-based programs? I mean, yep. you can look at epidemiological data and make some decisions. It's also possible that there's different ways that people could go about it. But, you know, there's a preponderance of evidence that very high animal protein intakes can be health compromising, whether it's kidney disease and heart disease and cancer. Yeah. You know, these are of great concern. But that doesn't mean that somebody adopting uh, one of these types of diets wouldn't be able to sustain short-term weight loss or that might not get bigger muscles faster. I mean, you know, anabolic steroids definitely result in increased muscle mass. Nobody's going to deny that. They might cause testicular atrophy and premature heart disease and death. But, you know, nonetheless, if your goal is to be the biggest, the fastest yep. person, that might be a, a more effective strategy than adopting a program that might allow you to live a long and healthy life. Now, our focus is how can we get patients to reduce debility? How long you live, in my opinion, is largely determined by genetics and life. But how well you live in the time you're around is largely determined by your diet and lifestyle choices. What we're trying to do is reduce stability. The average person spends 9.6 years debilitated, 16 years in poor health. The last two decades of people's lives is often where most of the money is spent on health care, which may not reduce all-cause mortality or improve quality. And that's what we're trying to change. Not necessarily that you live forever, you won't. We know there's only five human beings that have been well-documented to live past 117. There's been 100 billion people 
modern humans born on the planet. So the odds of going over 117, about 1 in 20 billion. Yeah. If we know that there's a cap biologically right now, what we want to do is not spend the last 20 years unable to talk or move lying in some nursing home bed waiting for people to come and change our diaper. What we're trying to do is live fully functional until we reach our genetic potential to go to bed one night and don't wake up. And that's what we're trying to pitch, is not necessarily living forever, but living well within your full capacities in the time that you have left. Let me ask you this question. I don't know if you know of Dr. Tom Cowan. He was recently on the show. He has his own podcast as well, but he's been out there quite a bit now. A retired pediatric physician. Uh, He had been practicing for over 35 years. And he wrote a book called The Contagion Myth. It was nothing in the typical medical community that you would identify with. It was that different. Talked about heart disease, for example. We're going to camp out there for a second. But he said that back in the 1920s, when people were eating fat or lard for that matter, not fat, but lard, animal proteins, et cetera, and people weren't dying of heart disease. Now, my first question is, I wasn't alive in 1920. The data that's been recorded not recorded back in that time period versus the data that's recorded now when you talk about genetics. You just said you believe that genetics has a big influence on what our age cap may be. How do we know? What we do know is that the industrial boom that occurred, GMOs, et cetera, the 1970 corn issue, where did it all break apart? Where did it all come to fruition? How do we know? How are you breaking that and analyzing it? Well, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in historical and nutritional data, but I do look at really excellent books that have been written by Professor T. Colin Campbell from Cornell University. Uh, He wrote a book called The China Study, which reviewed, you know, the largest epidemiological data that's been done on nutrition. In that book, it was well done. He has a book called Whole, where he looks at the idea of nutrition and diet as a whole rather than isolated nutrients. And I think, you know, for readers that are interested in exploring that topic in detail, I'd really refer them to those two. I think, excellent books. He has actually a new book coming out called The Future of Nutrition, where he talks a lot about why this current situation has arisen the way it is, largely driven by the economics of marketing nutrition rather than actually trying to necessarily seek out the truth about what type of diet would be the most sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so lots of controversy on this. I don't pretend to necessarily have all the right answers there. All I can tell you is what we've been doing for the past 36 years. And I'm seeing now 30 and 35-year follow-ups on patients that are applying our principles. And, you know, we have the luxury of actually living with our patients because they stay with us during the course of care. So we have people there for weeks or months. So we can really see. And what I can tell you is what I keep hearing from these people is the same thing, that all of their friends are aging out, dying, and falling apart. In fact, my mother was a great example. When she was 92 years old, she realized she had outlived all 50 of her lifelong friends. Everybody she'd known that used to make fun of her and her crazy son's diet and all that kind of stuff. And she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients Mm -hmm. if they're going to do this plant-based diet, make younger friends. (laughs) Because she says it gets lonely when everybody's dead. And she said, not just a little younger, a lot younger, because even 10 years wasn't enough. So I advise my patients, start making younger, healthier friends now so you won't be alone when you get older. You know, what's interesting. So earlier on in my podcast, we had Dr. Chris Davis on there. And what's pretty interesting, I think you'll you'll get a chuckle out of this. Part of the discussion was how we went from an insurance base to a cash-based business, the paradigm in the care administration from his mouth. So what he was doing inside the hospital, running ragged, to now seeing you know three to four patients a day, spending the time, 
I'm going to stop there for a second because we had two other surgeons that were on the show saying, look, in medical school, we were never taught business and we were never taught nutrition. So going back to Chris Davis, I said, look, we have plant-based diet, you have the kind of working, blah, 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 everything we mentioned before, right? And he says, look, I'm going to go on the record and say that a plant-based diet is for longevity and healthy and everything else. That's the way to go. That's the way to go and go to do it. My question for you, though, knowing where your position is on this and having 36 years of research and interaction, which is more than research, but interaction with people that you get to physically examine them, talk to them, have a discussion, check out their emotional and psychomental states. No one's been able to answer this, and I'm hoping you will. But where do you find the blood-based diet fall into all this? And the reason why I'm asking this is because people have allergies, people have responses chemically. And what a lot of people don't recognize is regardless of food or anything else that you put into your system, you have an immune response, period. So one of the great things about water-only fasting Mm -hmm. is it's a great uh, opportunity to recalibrate and reboot the system. It has a profound effect on the microbiome. And after fasting, you can do rotational feeding and probably more sensitive than the owlcat and the RAS and the RAS and all these (laughs) other tests that we use that have their limitations. Mm -hmm. Just doing very careful rotational refeeding with the least likely antigenic foods based on history can be very revealing in seeing what people have sensitivities to. And also, after fasting, a lot of times gut leakage, which may be a part of the sensitivity, seems to be healed. Mm -hmm. So what we're finding is even people that might have sensitivities to certain class of food, if they rotate those foods, if they're not overexposed, oftentimes they can function quite well clinically. Repeat exposure, particularly foods that have protein antigens in them, seems to be the big issue. Now, in fairness, in our diet, we don't use any meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, or sugar, and we don't use any glutinous grain. So we've already eliminated a significant percentage of the foods that people that have sensitivities tend to be reactive to. Mm-hmm. And then when you take whole plant foods, not highly processed, fractionated, heated, beaded, treated, chopped, diced crap that most people are living on, <laughs> but actual whole foods. Right. So fresh fruits and vegetables, raw and cooked, and you know, non-glutinous grains, so your quinoa, your millet, and your starchy vegetable materials, the cupboard squash, the sweet potatoes. When you take those whole foods, prepare it simply, rotate it in the diet, you can often see, oh, these foods people are fine with. Okay, this person might be sensitive to this class of food. Well, we'll avoid that. You know, there's no magic food that you have to have this food in order to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So you don't do well with grains or lectins or whatever, just get rid of those. And we'll eat more of the other stuff. You have trouble with the potato family, fine, we, we'll use sweet potatoes or we'll use squash or families that have different biological characteristics. Mm. And over time, what we're able to do is find a broad enough diet that people can sustain high degree of nutrition without activating their allergies. And over time, those allergies may begin to subside or at least become more manageable, like I yeah. say, with rotational feeding. We tend to go low-tech rather than high-tech with the testing. But it only works well if you can do the fasting safely and then have a controlled environment to really systematically take a look at those issues. There are a lot of people, I'm sure, you have had to work with patients where they've come into you, they're a mess. And let me define what, what I mean by a mess. Microbiome is just off the Richter scale. Uh, they're on blood thinner medications or heart medications or something else that's controlling or impacting the immune system, okay? Yeah. I don't know the term. I mean, for three days, I looked it up, and I just could not find the term. A friend of mine who is a doctor, when they go to these conferences, maybe you know this because you're a physician, and they said, look, once you put a patient on a heart thinner or some kind of medication, as soon as you take them off, you're no longer covered. 
you no longer protect it well, under. How do so, you convince patients? Those okay? Yeah, one of the most important things is to recognize the profound effect that medications have on people's yeah. bodies. Even you know, commonly used over-the-counter medications can have really devastating uh, consequences. An important part of our process is evaluating a patient and figuring out a safe and effective strategy for withdrawing their medication use, because most medications are not appropriate to use during fasting. Right. Remember, most people are medicated not for their condition, but for their diet. Right. And the moment you change their diet, the need for medication begins to change, and that's one of the complicating factors. Most doctors never see people get well. For example, if you're treating a patient with high blood pressure, you will tell a patient, if you're a traditional doctor, mm -hmm. that they will be on medications for the rest of their life. If they're on diabetes medications, they'll right. be told you'll be on medications forever. What they're really saying to you is, look, at, here's what we want you, you to do. Know. Follow our advice exactly, and we promise you, you'll never get well. We guarantee you'll be sick forever. You'll be on these medications till you die or they kill you. And that's the reality in conventional treatment because these medications have nothing to do with dealing with the cause of the problem. They're strictly trying to manage some of the secondary effects. And I'm not saying that they are not, couldn't potentially be life-saving. Yeah. There may definitely be situations where drugs may make the difference between life and death, but they never have anything to do with getting people healthy. And when it comes to safe blood pressure, patients are medicated because of their diet. The moment we change their diet, the need for medication begins to reduce. And most of these patients, we can safely withdraw their medication because their blood pressure comes down adequately with medications to reduce their critical need. And as soon as we put people on fasting, their blood pressures drop precipitously. And so, as I said, we took 174 consecutive patients with hypertension, including some of these people who are capped out at 220 over 120 on five meds. Those patients achieved normal blood pressure without medication, and we do it safely and effectively. And I can prove that because we published a fasting safety study. We have a study in the peer-reviewed journal on the effectiveness of fasting. It covered five years of patients, over 680 subjects, and it shows exactly what the adverse events are and what the morbidity, mortality, and complication rates are. And we've been able to show that fasting is, in fact, a safe process when it's used according to the protocols that we've published to the True North Health Center. I'm, I'm loved that we camped out here. This is awesome. Yeah, diet has a profound effect on blood pressure. If you control what you put in your mouth, you control blood pressure. The most persistent resistant cases will speed the process up with medically supervised water-only fasting for periods of 5 to 40 days. You know, it was Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus, and a bunch of our patients that fast for up to 40 days. Yeah. <laughs> I've had patients ask me, do we also teach people how to part the Red Sea? And I tell them, you know, it's all in the wrist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Now, what about the, I will get into the psychomental momentarily, but when it goes back to these physicians and doctors from breaking away from these medications, of course, the data is there, the information is there, and the proof is there. Is there any resistance? Is there anything like, well, what ifs, how comes? What are these people saying? What are these doctors saying? A couple months before COVID came in, where we used to actually travel to places and do lectures in person, I did a lecture at a medical school. It was a diabetes conference, and there was about 250 physicians there, most of which were overweight. They were being fed pulled pork sandwiches and chocolate cake, <laughs> and there was nothing really to eat except the table decorations. They were delicious, by the way. But um, at the diabetes so I did my presentation <laughs> and, you know, talked about some of our published case reports and outcome data. Mm -hmm. And one of the physicians came up afterwards and he was, you know, obviously very overweight, like most of the doctors that were there, 70 pounds or so overweight. And he said, you know, I, I've been in practice 25 years treating diabetics and I've never seen one get well. 
says, maybe I should start doing some of this diet stuff myself. He had never had a patient lose the weight, normalize blood sugar levels, and maintain normal blood sugar without medication. You know, after a while, if you treat enough hundreds of patients and nobody ever gets well, I'd start thinking, gee, maybe it's me or maybe it's my approach. Yeah. The fact is that about 80% of type 2 diabetics are able to achieve normal blood sugar levels without the need for medications if they're willing to use fasting followed by diet and exercise. You know, not everybody's willing to do that. I understand that. We have a highly self-selected, highly motivated group of patients. But let's face it, what motivates patients? Pain, debility, fear of death. Yeah. That's the most common. Once in a while, healthy people want to stay healthy and you see that, you know, those patients. But mostly it's people that feel like they have no choice because the quality of their life is so compromised by their debilitating degenerative diseases. They're willing to do anything, even yeah. eat well in order to get healthy. Those <laughs> patients that are that desperate that they're willing to do diet and lifestyle change have a consistent and exciting result. And what we're trying to do at the True North Health Center is not only demonstrate that, but document it and publish in the peer-reviewed literature. You know, on our website, healthpromoting.com, we have the results of our published research. And we've got over a dozen studies and case reports now that we've published utilizing this method. We've got a number of other studies that are in review right now. In fact, we've recently completed it with our colleague from the Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. a study looking at body composition changes during fasting. We have a DEXA scanner that allows us to look at not just percent body, but also how much visceral fat. That's the widow maker, the visceral fat. That's the right. stuff that kills you. Right. The visceral fat is the fat point. that's thought to be most associated with health compromising yeah. uh, conditions, the abdominal and, and organ fat. Mm -hmm. Well, what we found is not only is fat primarily mobilized during fasting, but visceral fat is preferentially mobilized during fasting. So the percentage of visceral fat that's lost is much higher even than the, the adipose tissue that's lost, and that the weight that's regained after fasting is almost exclusively lean tissue, that is muscle, water, fiber, and glycogen, not fat. Fat loss continues mm. as long as people are adopting whole plant food diets. So the fat goes down during fasting, it continues to go down after feeding. The weight that's regained is in fact realimentation, rehydration, and lean tissue rebuilding. And so that's very exciting. And that paper will be coming out hopefully uh, later this year that really puts to rest the old wise tales about what happens to the body composition during fasting. We're actually in a position now that we can research that definitively. And, and so far, the results look very, very exciting. Follow up to that, we get that publication, we can put it up for the audience, they can listen to That's amazing. I want to go back to something when you talked about SOS, so the sugars, the oils, and the salts. And I want to break that down a little bit. And there's a specific reason, because right now you're across country, a lot of people are going to be listening to this, and they're going to say, okay, what do I pick? I, what oils do I need to avoid? What salts do I need to avoid? So specifically, for example, like Himalayan salt is thought to be good because it's away from the ocean. It has a good amount of trace minerals. And this is where I'm going here is... Okay, so let's talk about Himalayan salt. Yeah, like what's so good, Himalayan what's salt has some, <clears throat> some benefits of Himalayan salt is it has some contaminants with other minerals mm -hmm. that mean that there's less sodium per volume. So there's less of the uh, health-compromising hyper-concentrated salt uh, per unit. So if you use a smaller volume of a bad thing, it's less bad than if you use a larger volume of, of a bad thing. So there's nothing about the sodium chloride in Himalayan salt that's different than the sodium chloride in other things. The fact that there's other minerals could certainly be a positive thing. It's like looking at municipal water and saying, well, but there's some calcium, but there's some, yeah, there's also hydrogen halocarbons and there's stuff, you better filter your water. Yeah. In our model, we get all of the sodium chloride we need from the whole foods, just like we get all the sugar we need from our whole foods. We don't need to add sugar 
to our food to get enough carbohydrate. We don't need to add oil to our whole plant food diet to get enough essential fatty acids and form decoxohexoic acid, etc. We get all the essential fats we need from a well-designed whole plant food diet. And we don't need to add salt to the diet. We get the sodium chloride we need, especially when large volumes of plant-based vegetables are included, your celery and your tomatoes and your all your green vegetable materials. When you eat large volumes of those, which you have to mm -hmm. when you're not eating all this highly processed food, you get the quantity and quality of nutrients you need. The only real exception is B12. So B12 is formed by bacteria. Now, meat eaters although they can certainly have B12 deficiency, they get a lot more B12 in their diet in large part because of the, the fecal contamination of a lot of the products that they're eating have lots of bacteria. But for vegetarians or vegans that don't use any animal food and are very careful about hygiene because they don't want worms and parasites, so they wash, they peel, we're careful about how we prepare our food, total B12 intake is lower and can over years be depleted. We do recommend 1,000 micrograms of uh, methylcobalamin a day for vegans. And that will eliminate the likelihood, even in people that have trouble with absorption of B12, of developing B12-related issues. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, people that don't get outside and don't form enough vitamin D could also be low in D. And so you do see D levels that have to be supplemented in people that live in areas where they don't get enough sun exposure. But generally, what mm -hmm. we do is try to avoid the pills and the potions and the powders, focus on a whole plant food diet. Mm -hmm. We get the quantity and quality of the nutrients you need without the dietary excess. And the clinical results are excellent. And if you combine that with the use of fasting to kind of speed the process up, it's really amazing what the body can do when you leave it alone and let it do what it does best, and that's heal itself. All right. So this is going to be a different type of a segue. So the rise of the supplementation business has been the rise of the big pharmaceutical business. Because big pharma and people want to move away from that, they're saying, what can I take that's more natural? And they think because they, they're getting something that's extracted and more consolidated as pure, they're going to, oh no, I'm going to do all these different vitamins and all these different supplementations, et cetera, peptides. So what are you finding when they're following your specific diet, avoiding all the, thank you for the description of the salt. I do want to jump into oils too, specifically the olive oils. When someone's leading with your recommendations and your diets, what are you seeing on the supplementation side as well? Are you seeing those are being completely eliminated outside of B12? Yeah. Many times supplements will do more mm -hmm. harm than good. If you look at the cancer studies with these, for example, supplementation of vitamin A, they've mm -hmm. had to discontinue many studies because the death rate was so much higher in the supplemented patients than the non-supplemented patients. Yeah. So you have to be really careful, particularly for certain nutrients. Vitamin A, iron in uh, males you know, can be a health-compromising component. So you got to be really careful about multiples, for example, that contain iron mm. if you're a non-anemic male. So uh, supplementation can actually, you know, our arrogance exceeds our ignorance sometimes, and it sounds good, but, you know, calcium supplementation doesn't prevent osteoporosis, but may very well contribute to kidney stone formation, other examples. Right. On the other hand, as I've acknowledged, you know, B12 is a real issue uh, for people that are, happen to choose exclusively plant-based diets, and so we, we avoid that with supplemental B12. Uh, again, we focus on whole plant foods. The results uh, speak for themselves. You know, that's why we're publishing outcome data, both case reports as well as clinical trials, to show that this is at least one approach that can be effective at helping people that are sick get well and helping healthy people stay that way. That's actually my biggest interest, is the approach that's going to be sustainable to allow healthy people to maintain a high degree of health till they reach their potential. Go back to oil for a moment. Is olive oil not good? If you compare olive oil to other oils, you may find that there's huge advantages, the omega-9 fatty yeah. essential acids. It's way less bad than some other oils. 
but it still doesn't rise to the level of being good, necessary, or, or advised in our program. All oils have nine calories per gram, which means they're the highest, most concentrated caloric substance on the planet. If your goal is to gain weight, we still wouldn't recommend oils, but I mean, at least you might be able to rationalize. But if your goal is to maintain optimum weight, eating highly processed fractionated oils, not only unnecessary, but from our viewpoint, health compromising. You get all the fats you need mm-hmm. if you're eating a whole plant food diet. And in that, particularly if you're able to include things like nuts and seeds and walnuts and flax seeds, avocados, these are very rich foods, even those we portion control, just because we don't want too much fat in the diet. In fact, in our approach, people are getting about 15 to 18% of calories from fat on average, mm-hmm. and about 10%, maybe up to 12% of calories from protein, with the balance coming from whole plant food complex carbohydrates. In my review of the literature, that type of a diet, give or take, is the one that's most supported for sustaining long-term health. And it's certainly been our experience for the past few decades that that type of a diet works well at helping people maintain the progress they see after medically supervised fasting. Stevia, those safe sugars outside of the the plain white sugar. You didn't hear it from me. You heard it from a doctor. (laughs) Yeah, well, we avoid all those sweeteners. They have a number of problems, not only their own physical health problems. Even cane sugar, right? Like cane sugar is probably the worst. You can make a pretty good case against some of these artificial sweeteners as well as far as being bad. What I tell patients is real simple. The pleasure trap, that that is the artificial stimulation of dopamine in their brain that comes from these chemicals, is associated with an addictive type response. So if you... Take any substance and ask yourself, do I really, really want the substance? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Well, the chances are you can't have it because you get that kind of addictive response because it's activating the pleasure trap. We wrote a whole book called The Pleasure Trap oh, you beat me that really explains in detail <laughs> how it is we get caught and fooled by the artificial stimulation of dopamine in our brain, whether it's drug addiction or the use of these chemicals put into our food. It's why people are fat, sick, and miserable. We explain it. It's a disturbing book. You won't like what you hear, but it'll be very helpful if your goal is to get and stay healthy to read The Pleasure Trap. And that's exactly what we're talking about here is the fact that you get a drug-like effect from the hypercalorically concentrated substances added to food. They feel good, but they're not good. So we avoid salt, oil, and sugar, including all the various chemical manifestations of sweeteners that don't have as much caloric density. They still can disrupt microflora in the gut. They still can prevent you from neuroadapting to where good foods taste good. You know, that's one of the real benefits of fasting is after fasting, good foods taste good. good. And yeah. now you can get people to eat what used to be thought of as tasteless swell. I always like to tell the story of our very first union patient. We became covered by a big international labor union uh, so that those people could come to our program without cost and do our program. And the very first person they sent us was a gentleman whose blood pressure was 220 over 120, capped out on meds, grossly overweight, really in trouble. And he came in, but they didn't tell him what the program was. They just said, you have to go up there, normalize your pressure before you can go back to being crane operator. And he shows up at our place, looks around and says, Oh, I think I'm I'm in the wrong place. And I said, No, you're in there. I got your name on the list. He goes, No, no, it's not me. And I said, No, you're here to get well. He goes, I'm not sick. And now I'm a little annoyed. I said, What do you mean you're not sick? You're look at your blood pressure. You're carrying a keg around in your belly. I said, Not only are you sick, it's not long. You're going to die. And he said, Yeah, well, don't we all have to die? Huh. Which is you know a valid point. And I, so I, so I thought, Okay, sure. different tax. I said, Look, if we get you healthy and get you off these medications. There'll be $880 a month of meds you won't be having to buy. And he goes, what do I care? The union pays for my medication. You know, I don't pay for medication. So now I'm thinking, okay, this is not my normal self-selected, highly motivated patient I'm used to dealing with. 
So I'm thinking about this medical history. We know that diabetic and hypertensive males, one of their most common problems is impotence. Yep. And so I said, okay, if we get you off all these drugs and get you healthy, we might be able to do something about your little problem. <laughs> so he starts to stand up, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, because he's a big guy. And he says, why the hell didn't you just say something? So now we've got his attention. You know, he's been a guy living on triple cheeseburgers. That's what he ate, triple cheese, without the lettuce. If they put that on there, he, he'd throw that away because he didn't like that slimy stuff. I'm thinking, okay, we got to feed him a bit before we start him fasting. So we give him some food, you know, some whole plant foods, and he's trying to eat them, but he's like, oh, I can't. I'm thinking, oh my God, he must have an esophageal tumor or something. He can't even swallow the food. I said, it looks like you're having trouble with the food. He said, what food? He said, this is not food. This is disgusting. He said, if I have to eat tasteless swill like this the rest of my life, I'd rather just die. He says, why don't you go to my truck, get my 12 gauge when I'm not looking, just shoot me in the head. <laughs> so we check him in. Bottom line is he fasts 26 days, he loses 50 pounds, he normalizes his blood pressure, wow. he normalizes his blood sugar level. Afterwards, we're feeding him the same food, only now he's actually eating the food. Eating the food and I said, yeah. it looks like you're doing better with the food now. He says, yeah, your damn chef's finally learning, getting the hang of it. He told me that he didn't believe that it was the same food. He said when he came in, it was disgusting. He said, this isn't bad. Six months later at a semi-annual, we're going and we're checking blood pressures. I see him. I said, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing just fine. That guy wouldn't have complied for a day if we gave him a piece of paper that said, go eat a healthy diet. But after fasting, he neuroadapted. Good food started to taste better to him. He made a recovery. He continues to do well. You can't get people to make radical dietary changes just by talking to them. Sometimes you need to really hold their hand and yeah. guide them through the process because it's one of the most difficult things people do in our society mm -hmm. is adopt a health-promoting diet yeah. in a society that's designed to give them what they want, not what they need. And what they want is how to get out of the pleasure trap without actually changing their diet and lifestyle. How can they recover their health without having to pay the price of healthful living? So they believe in the magic of medicine or pills or potions or powders. And unfortunately, they're often disappointed. And so what we need to do is teach people that health results from healthful living. And that means you control diet, sleep, and exercise. If you need help, you come to a place like True North Health Center. We'll help you make the transition. This is where my annoyance comes in, specifically. Big Pharma, you mentioned in the podcast that I listened to that they're trying to reproduce, recreate pharmacologically what you're doing. Yeah. Well, what they want is fasting mimicking drugs. Right. They want a drug. Do what fasting does, but without you having to do that nasty fasting. Right. Here's my point. And all of this was leading up to this. This is my double handout right here. Here's the information on this side, and here's the information on that side for the audience. You just perfectly exhibited, explained with proof, with data, scientific-based research and data, by the way, of why a healthy diet that is plant-based, works, works well, and is foolproof. But yet now, whomever, as the chief science officer, wants to try to recreate and reproduce artificially what can only be done naturally. I mean, we don't know if it can only be done naturally. They keep trying. But remember, there's, just keep this in mind. All they really want is your money. That's it. They're just trying to give you what you want. It's, I don't know if I see the conspiracy in the same way other people do. I think you just got a bunch of people that want to give people what they want. And that's how to escape the pleasure trap consequences without having to escape the pleasure trap. Right. So how can I not be fat, but still eat all this greasy, fatty, processed, dead, decaying flesh 
foods. How can I be healthy, but without actually having to do that, get to sleep and eat well and exercise? And how can I be happy without having to give up my short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behaviors? Yeah. So, you know, that's all they're doing is trying to give people that look at who is the largest seller of organic produce in the country? Oh, I don't know. Costco Foods. Number two is Walmart. Did those executives sit down and say, you know, we really want to help improve the health of the country. That's our primary mission because our stockholders really want us to make sure we improve it. No, they said, oh, people will pay a premium for a food that doesn't have sprays on it. Let's give them food that doesn't have sprays on it. Who owns the land that they farm on? (laughs) So the bottom bottom line, though, is I think that we can control some things by controlling how we spend our money, who we vote for. I'm not politically inclined to promote one group over another, but what I would say is, could we start, I don't know, elect people that can read? Maybe that's a good idea. Think about these things. Maybe we should make better choices, and then maybe we'll get results more consistent with what our desires are. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the gentleman that, helped, that had a keg in his stomach. You spoke about how hey, you have an impotence problems. And what's really interesting to me, and I believe that nothing happens by coincidence. I was having a conversation last night about the detox triangle between the vision, the nose, and impotence because the vessels are so small in circular levels. You just proved that the plant-based diet and what it does for the circulatory system basically is the only way to go. Well, I don't know. Again, I don't know if it's the only way to go. I can just say that with the people that we apply this with, we're getting consistent results. Maybe other people are also getting consistent results, but show me the data. Mm. Show me the data that people that live on highly processed foods and large amounts of animal products thrive. We already have that data. It doesn't look very good. We have two-thirds of our population eating that type of a diet, and their outcomes are poor. So I think we do need a lot more research to make definitive statements. And certainly we do before we can claim that we've got the end all and be all. But what I can tell you is that people are are willing to do this type of approach, at least with these conditions that we treat, get Mm -hmm. consistent reproducible results. And it makes sense to me. And and I think the more you look into these ideas of nutrition and the importance that nutrition and lifestyle plays, the more it kind of makes sense. You'd predict that that would be the outcome. And it is. Right. My audience knows that I intermittently fast daily. And I intimately fast four days a week, either 16 to 18, based on where my meeting schedules are. And then the other three days, it's between 12 and 14. And I purposely do it that way because I noticed when I go 16 hours consistently, seven days a week, my weight loss is just tremendous. So for me to balance- We also advocate a 16-hour fasting window every day for every person that's trying to maintain or lose weight and a 12-hour fasting window for everybody trying to gain weight. That amount of fasting every day cumulatively is thought to have biological impact long-term and may help prevent overeating. Walter Longo is really the expert there. He's been publishing a lot of papers in rats, but also in people that suggest intermittent fasting may have some beneficial application. And we do that routinely at Trinidad Health Center. We feed on an eight-hour feeding window. We usually feed exclusively a whole plant food uh, diet within that eight hours, and it seems to work very well. For those who are listening right now, Again, it's not coming from me, it's coming from a doctor. Can you explain neurologically why it takes 90 days or somewhere in or around 90 days for the adaptation to this new Hmm. diet, to this new lifestyle to work? I don't know if I know the physiological mechanisms. What I can tell you is this, though. There's a good literature on this. It takes about 30 days to adapt to a low-salt diet and up to 90 days to adapt to a low-fat diet in terms of satiation mechanisms. We did a study, actually, at the True North Health Center where we were able to determine minimum threshold detection 
to sweet, to salt. And then we compared what happens after fasting to taste, not just the physiological uh, response, but also the hedonic response. And what we're able to prove in this paper that has now been published is that there is a profound change in the palate with fasting that increases sensitivity to sugar and salt, and also a hedonic change that occurs in terms of persons of willingness to like their liking of foods. And we're pursuing this further in some other long-term studies that we're doing. But what we're postulating right now is that when people adopt a health-promoting diet, they eventually will adapt. And it can take up to, as you mentioned, 90 days to adapt to low-fat where they feel satisfied when they're eating lower-fat foods. But that process can be sped up. One of the ways that we appear to be able to speed it up is medically supervised water-only fasting. And Mm -hmm. people that are doing this intermittent fasting also appear to be reporting improved perception of taste to healthy foods. And so we haven't done that study yet, but I think we'll probably find that. We're hoping to be doing a study along with Walter Longo's group, comparing intermittent fasting to long-term fasting and some of the biochemical changes and stuff. But remember, this is all virgin data. I think we have the first data that's been collected looking at microbiome changes after long-term fasting. We did that with uh, Luigi Vontana from Washington University, and that data has not been released yet. It's happening. There's definitely interest. We've gone from being what was considered criminal quacks 15 years ago to cutting-edge researchers because now, all of a sudden, the same thing we've always been doing has garnered a little bit more public interest and support. And so I would definitely encourage other researchers out there, if they're interested in human subjects research, contact us at the True North Health Foundation. We're interested in doing collaborative research and working with other people to ask and answer some of these very important questions. You know, how should people be eating? What's the best way to do it? Are there things that augment it? You know, how can we do a better and safer job of helping sick people get well? Fasting with the assistance of a colonic, is it effective? Is it not needed? Because again, we talked about the microbiome a lot and we talk about the trains of cells and what are they pulling out? Before people start fasting, they go on an appropriate fasting lead-in diet. Mm. And if that is followed, what happens is the only material left in the colon is going to be some cellulose and there's not going to be any material to create problems. And so it's, yes, it is very important that we have the bowels evacuating properly before fasting. Now, there are some people that have pathology where we might, as a clinical intervention, use a colonic, mm-hmm. uh, but that's rare. About 1% of patients will we do any type of bowel intervention with. We try to do the right dietary lead-in so that the need for that is eliminated. And it's absolutely not indicated or necessary if you can get people eating properly prior to fasting. And there's reasons not to do it. Uh, especially during fasting, we wouldn't do that. But before fasting, it can lead to, especially overstimulation of the bowels can lead to sluggish bowels, and then you have problems post-fasting getting recovery. Yeah, yeah. But we have tremendous success in treating, including chronic constipation and bowel disruption, dysbiosis. These conditions respond exceptionally well to fasting and a careful whole plant food diet post-fasting. Psychomental. If you don't mind, I heard the story of your brother. I mm. loved it because you said what I would have said. I completely agree with how you manage that. My older brother and I, my brother's, you know, five and a half years older than I am. So I'm 62, he's 67. So we grew up together and, you know, as all brothers are fairly competitive and whatnot. So anyway, as he gets older and I get into this business, he is getting fat. And of course, you know, I see him and poking his belly and giving him a hard time. Yeah, he doesn't want to hear about it. So finally, at some point, his wife, my uh, sister-in-law, became very ill and she had a serious problems, came in, fasted with us, didn't avoided surgery and recovered and adopted a vegan diet. 
So I'm thinking, okay, finally my brother will come around because, you know, now she's vegan. Mm-hmm. Now, he wants to keep eating his meat and his processed foods, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger. She's doing great. So this goes on for about How 10 years. How old is years. she now when she, when she adopted this? When she adopted this, this, this was about, so she was probably, you know, in her late 40s. Okay. Okay. Right. Here he is now. He's getting older. Ironically enough, at, at that time, he was working for one of the big airline firms, you know, as an engineer. Somebody from his work happened to come to True North Health and do a fast and had a great result and overcame his blood pressure and went back and starts telling my brother, hey, you got to go to this place. And, you know, he starts describing, he goes, yeah, that's my brother. <laughs> so anyway, he still won't come in. Okay, finally, I get the call. He's in the hospital. He said, Alan, hmm. I'm in the hospital. I said, what happened? He said, I had a heart attack. I said, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> He goes, no, no, I, I had a heart attack. I said, I heard you. I said, you didn't die, and now you're going to have to pay attention. Right. I said, it's the best thing that could have happened to you. So he was a little upset with me, but he asked me a few questions because they say they, they're telling him he's got to have a bypass. Which 50% of those stents fail. And so I t- gave him some questions to ask his surgeon. He asked the surgeon, he said, if I do this, won't they plug up again? He goes, yeah, but they'll last longer than if you just do the stents. That's not true. He goes, okay, what if I made radical diet and lifestyle changes? And he said the surgeon, who knew him well, started laughing at him. He said, you're not going to make diet and lifestyle changes. That's ridiculous. So he checked himself out, adopted the diet diligently, and he was absolutely diligent. Yeah. Long story short, a year later, he passes his stress test. He's fine. He's got the blessings of his surgeon. And he looks great. He's lost the weight. His knee swelling went down. He's back to playing volleyball. And my sister-in-law is thrilled because she doesn't have to make two meals now because he's adopted and strictly applying health-promoting diet. He feels great. He looks fabulous. And now he's retiring and going to be able to enjoy his life instead of ending up being you know, a vegetable somewhere. But the point is, even my own brother, even with his wife having done it, is still resistant and reluctant. This is a very difficult decision for people to make. Yeah. And so, you know, it really made me sense that. I mean, sometimes what it takes is pain, debility, and fear of death. And that's what he experienced. And thank goodness didn't die. And now, you know, the quality of his life is good. And it's because he's been willing to adopt a whole plant food SOS-free diet. It's a really common theme, what you just said, that it takes that type of scenario, pain. Pain's the big one because yeah. uh, people don't know how to manage Well, debility too, though. You know, if you lose function, you know, yeah. then... But what you're saying, that's a really uh, good common theme, which is why I asked the question, why 90 days? Because 90 days is a small, if it's 90 days, I, I know it's not concrete, but that short time period is worth the price to pay for gaining years back in your life. Yeah, but for an addict, that's a long 90 days. Listen, yeah, for an addict, and most people are so afraid. They think if they get on a plane in New York and they were to fly all the way to California, they would die of starvation over Colorado. They think the peanuts saved their life. I know. It's awful. So 90 days is a long time. You know, you get people that can make and sustain changes. That's why I like fasting, because if you tell a person, well, yeah, you're not going to feel satisfied for three months. Good luck. But -hmm. if you can make that change to the point, like my gentleman from the union, that now good foods taste tolerable, and it's not as, you know, then you at least have a fighting chance. Right. The social side of this, the psycho-mental side of this. I know you've spoken about it a lot, especially in the, the Netflix series Unwell for fasting. It's really, really hard. And the woman that was on there, I mean, she was really, really brave. And she said, man, I don't know. She was a good old Southern gal. And you know, she had never done that before. And she was used to eating chicken and grits and all yeah. the typicals, right? 
the hardest thing for her was, man, what, what's going to happen when I go back? And then you yeah. you could see the fear coming back into her body yeah. when she was speaking about that. Yeah. What do you do yeah, there to help problem. people? Well, one thing is, again, to read our book, The Pleasure Trap, because the co-author of The Pleasure Trap, the principal author of The Pleasure Trap, is Dr. Doug Lyle, is the psychologist. And he talks a lot about strategies on, like, you know, he has a theme strategy. He talks about things you can do to make other people less uncomfortable so that you don't create too much distress. It is a huge problem. Yeah. And it's even more of a problem, I think, for women than men. You know, think about a woman that loses 50 pounds and goes back to work. Do you think all the other women are like, oh, did you adopt a plant-based diet? You look wonderful. What can we do to be supportive? No. No. That's not what happens. No. They give her hell. You're, if you think you're so good with your thin clothes and your perky smile and all the rest, they're bringing them cupcakes. It's not, <laughs> where are you going to get your protein from? You know, it's not good to be a fanatic. And they'll give them a hard time to the point where some of my patients have told me they'll like wear baggy clothes to work and stuff just so that they don't piss everybody off. Men, on the other hand, lose 50 pounds to go to work. They don't get any trouble from the other men because right. the other men don't notice. And if they do notice, they don't care. So it's easier, I think, for males in general, as a general stereotype, to make these changes than it is for women. Women have to work harder because of these social issues. Although the biology plays in there too. If you look at average weight loss for men or women, everything else being equal, men are about 50% faster weight loss because they've got testosterone. Right. They've got a fat-burning hormone. If you inject women with testosterone, they start losing fat. But then they get hairy and get cancer and die. So it's probably not a good strategy. But <laughs> the point is, you know, there are biological differences that make it easier for men. Right. And there are psychological differences. And the point you're yeah. making, though, is that the psychology of this is a hugely important issue. I noticed problems with patients. They would do well at the center. And sometimes when they went home, they would struggle. Yeah. And so at first I thought, well, maybe we just shouldn't let people go home. But then it turns out that's impractical because they can't stay at the center forever. Now we've been having to try to develop strategies and try to offer support. We have a phone coaching service, for example, where people are able to access our doctors remotely through Zoom or through the phone so that they can access a doctor that's not an idiot easily and affordably. So that's been a new innovation. We have a Roku channel where they can watch our video education free. They can go onto True North TV. They can go onto our website and get access to our educational materials without cost. They can call me if they fill out our registration form, so I get their medical history, mm -hmm. I will talk because you, your listeners without any cost. They can call me and I'll let them know, in my opinion, whether or not these types of approaches may have, have use and, and send them to the closest place to wherever they live. Those services we're doing to try to reach out to people, to give more people access to the support that they need in order to make radical diet and lifestyle changes. This is difficult. It is difficult to do diet change. It's difficult to adopt exercise programs. It's difficult to deal with social problems. And all of it's difficult. The question is, is it worth it? Yes. And I don't have people coming back, putting this effort in and saying, oh, yeah, I got healthy, but eh, it wasn't worth it. I want to go back to being fat and miserable like everybody else. So they'll like me. I'm thankful that you just brought that up because there are a lot of people who let's just talk about with the socioeconomic piece of this. Uh, a lot of the foods that you're talking about tend to be on the higher side because people know they'll pay a premium for it and they, Wait a can, second. And they can afford well, it. There's a billion and a half people on the planet that make less than $5 a day. And what do they eat? Rice and beans. Rice and beans. Rice and beans, starchy vegetables. These are the lowest cost per calorie foods on the planet. Mm -hmm. And if you make it yourself, rather than buying it from some fast food, you can get your 2000 calories of healthy whole plant foods organically grown less expensively than what people are currently spending on their diet. Yeah. There's no economic reason why adopting a whole plant food SOS-free diet can't be done, even people with the most limited incomes. 
well, a lot of people are under the the victim status. I need help. I can't do it by myself. Put all these roadblocks in front of them. So what I'm asking is- But they're not real. But of course, they're all imaginary. Can 100% complete there. But what my point is, the Roku channel that you just mentioned, so people can, if you give someone a little bit of a, an olive branch just to lure them in and they can watch something like that and it's effective. It's like, oh, it's not so bad. It does work. And then they can start a free consultation. That's what I was going at. And that's a tremendous service to our website. Our our truenorthhealth.com website is really information rich. It has True North TV on it. Like Mm -hmm. I mentioned, all the lectures. It has all the articles we've published. Everything's freely available, and there's enough information there for people that are motivated. They'll have the content they need to begin to make the diet and lifestyle changes. Right. And intermittent fasting costs nothing. People can limit their feeding window, stop eating three hours before they go to bed. They can do that without interfering with their medication or medical management. They can do that without spending any money. They don't have to buy any products. This is not something that should be economically limiting in terms of the diet and the lifestyle changes and getting good information. And so, you know, I think we've done a good job. Our True North Health Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit research-based organization. And our mission is not just to do research, but also to provide public education. We have a training program for doctors that can come and do internship and residency. Costs them nothing. We provide them room and board and training, no cost, so that doctors can learn to do something worthwhile with their life. And that's help sick people get well and teach healthy people how to stay that way. For those of your listeners that are clinicians, that want to learn how to do this and see healthy people getting well, come and spend time with us and we will help you have that experience. I just want to post for the new years of three simple things to lead off 2021, how to crush it. First one was time management. Stop wasting your time. Stop being frivolous with your time and do what you want to do. One. Two was nourish your body properly. That was my precursor where I said, look, Dr. Goldhammer is coming on to the show and He's recommended 16 hours of intermittent fasting. I combine that with something I actually do believe in with Dr. Cowan, where he said, look, if it has a label, don't eat it. (laughs) Simple questions. Anyone have? Okay, we're done. And that was it. And the last one was, as you're doing that, as you're properly letting your gut heal for 16 hours or whatever that day you're going to do it for, again, I'm an adjustable intermittent fast and you're eating foods without label, and you're properly nourishing your body, now your body gets to really heal when you sleep. So you need to sleep well and sleep to heal at the same time. And that's it. And, and it sounds, again, really cliche, but I'm telling you, it's in that order how things work and how they will work in the long term. Yeah, health really does result from healthful living. And so everybody owes it to themselves to fully adopt these principles and then decide. Yeah. See how you feel. See how you function. Just give it enough time that you can make that full transition. Sometimes when people first, like when they first quit drinking coffee, they get headaches. That doesn't mean that you have a coffee deficiency and you have to drink headaches. It just means you're an addict. And eventually that pain and the problems go away. Same thing with diet change. Yeah, at first, yes, you may not feel so good. Mm -hmm. And if you need help, don't hesitate to utilize the services that are available to get the coaching and support that you need. Right. I'm going to leave with a bit of hope for those who are a little bit more in a dire situation here. For those who have cancer, I know there is a combination, and I did learn this for the first time myself when I watched you on the Netflix series, the combination of fasting and chemotherapy. Tell us a little about there and what resources may be available for people who are in a position where they think they're going to die because of cancer. 
depending on the cancer, obviously it makes a big difference. But for example, we published a paper in the British Medical Journal four years ago on a case report on a woman with follicular lymphoma that resolved her follicular lymphoma. Now we have a three-year follow-up that's been published in the British Medical Journal case reports, and we actually have a four-year follow-up that hasn't yet been published. So we've shown that not only can some types of cancer like lymphoma resolve themselves, but in patients that are willing to do the diet, sustain it. Uh, Walter Longo is the one that's been publishing a lot of work showing the combination of intermittent short-term fasting along with chemotherapy dramatically enhances cancer-free survival and the effect. There's something called differential stress sensitization where cancer cells become more vulnerable to chemotherapy in the fasting state. And cancer mm -hmm. cells kind of like a higher sugar environment. So when you put them in a ketotic environment, they don't compete as well. So it allows the chemotherapy to be more effective. And it also fasting helps protect the healthy cells from some of the damaging effects of chemotherapy. So chemotherapy may be able to be used more effectively. We're not the experts in that, but Dr. Longo certainly has published some interesting research with that. Our belief is that whether you have cancer or you don't have cancer, getting healthy is going to be a number one priority. So the question you always should ask your oncologist or doctor of anything is where's the data that says that if I do X, Y, or Z treatment, I'm going to live longer or live better? Where's the evidence supporting the recommendation? Because clearly, if they're going to recommend treatment that's highly invasive, sure. there must be data supporting it, yeah. and read it. And mm -hmm. you may be able to convince yourself that it's worth the risk, or maybe not, depending on the, the cancer and the circumstance. Right. You know, one of the things that our doctors provide help isn't that they have all the answers, but they can help them look at the literature give them the questions to ask their doctor so that they can be satisfied. Whatever treatment they're going to undergo, they feel comfortable that it makes sense. Mm. Uh, if you read books like Mukherjee's book, Emperor of All Maladies, which is the history of cancer and its treatment, you realize that not all these treatments that are routinely prescribed are necessarily well-supported. It's important that you feel comfortable that whatever they're recommending work well. We just had an example, though, of a case where the diet in conjunction with immunotherapy in a case with Merkel cell cancer, which is generally a very deadly cancer, worked fabulously and the person had virtually no side effects, which wow. we attributed to the fact that they were on a healthy diet. Huh. Not that the diet alone would have been sufficient to resolve Merkel cell. The immunotherapy appeared to be an important component, but the diet was perhaps responsible for helping minimize some of the common side effects that go along with that treatment. This guy hmm. has done so well. He's in his 80s. He's done so well. They've actually, for the first time ever for this oncologist, actually decided to stop the ongoing immunotherapy, because now he's well, his CTs look good, doesn't seem to be, you know, normally they don't live long enough to discontinue the therapy. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. you know, mortality is usually closely proximated to <laughs> diagnosis. So, in this guy, he's doing great, and now he can actually hold off on doing any more immunotherapy and just continue with the diet. Again, these are anecdotal. We need to publish long-term, we're hoping to do a long-term clinical trial on the treatment of lymphoma, but certainly enough to stimulate interest. No doubt. Last two questions for you. You have you know, over 34 years of direct experience, patient experience, you've learned a lot, you educate yourself continuously, you're given lectures. As I stated in the beginning, I believe you're one of the foremost leaders, if not the leader in this particular category of medicine. How do you educate yourself? Where do you give your attention of focus to learning? Wonderful thing today is that we have access to a vast majority of literature that comes out every day particularly in the area of nutrition and fasting, literally every day. There's wonderful guys like Michael Greger that go through and review the literature and try to give his interpretations and bring forth content. And you can now get those articles online. You can look that up. You can read that. I'm fortunate we have a big staff at the Toronto Health Center, including a research staff. Dr. Tasha Myers is our director of research, who's you know a PhD postdoc from Columbia University, super bright woman. 
and she can help where my uh, scientific limitations may be. My orientation is more clinical. She's absolutely state-of-the-art and is able to read this literature and help us interpret it and apply it clinically. So certainly I'm not capable of doing the full breadth of evaluation, but the people that we have working with us are. And it's, uh, it helps to affiliate with people that are a lot smarter, a lot brighter, and have a lot more uh, research experience. Our expertise is we know how to use diet and fasting to get sick people well. The research scientists that we're affiliating with are helping us understand how it is what we're doing is working. What about audiobooks slash podcasts? Uh, any kind of audio version or even YouTube videos. Yeah, The Pleasure Trap is available now on audio and it's fabulous. In fact, Chef AJ did the reading of it in a studio and did a great job. And so for people that don't like to read, they can listen to The Pleasure Mm -hmm. Trap. And I would really encourage people to take a look at our book. It's a, I think, a very valuable summary of uh, what you need to know to get and stay healthy. Now, the last question is you have the final word. You get to leave the audience with whatever you'd like to tell them. Well, I I really believe that if you want to get healthy, you have to live healthy. And there's no pills, potions, powder, or magic that's going to make up for the fact that you have to control your diet, your sleep, and your exercise. You sleep so you can wake spontaneously feeling refreshed. You exercise regularly so you maintain flexibility, strength, balance, and conditioning. And you eat a whole plant food SOS-free diet. If you do that, I think the chances of you living to your full potential are very, very high. Very nice. In front of us, we have uh, Dr. Alan Goldhammer. He was uh, gracious enough to give us uh, well over an hour of his time. I know he's exceptionally busy. You can find him at uh, True North Health Center. We will put all the links to everything that he mentioned in the podcast notes. So again, you do not have to worry about taking notes. We'll make it easy, accessible, and clickable right there in the podcast notes as always. We can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you for validating and verifying and clearing up a lot of confusion around lifestyle, health, nutrition, et cetera. I appreciate you getting our message out, Mix. If there's anything else I can do, let me know. And we'll look forward to having our people get a chance to view the discussion. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Goldhammer. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, very good. Nice to meet you. You too. Take care. Best and brightest, thank you for listening. Now, please take this information and do something with it. Learn more, share it with others, and decide what you can do today to make all of your tomorrows healthy and happy. I look forward to reading your YouTube comments and Apple reviews, or possibly even speaking in person. From all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we thank you. We'll see you for episode number 72. See you next time.